Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we have a chat with Warren Hansen. You may know him from his Inside Curling podcast with Kevin Martin. He's involved with Curling Canada for many years. And he's also written a new book called Sticks and Stones. It's about how curling found its place in the Olympics. It was tenuous for a while, but now curling a mainstay of the Winter Games. You'll hear our conversation coming up on the podcast. We are going to stick with curling because on the line we have the author of a new book called Sticks in Stones, the story of how curling became an Olympic medal sport. His name is Warren Hansen. He's been involved in curling for quite a long time, and he joins us now on the CJOB Sports Show. Welcome to the show, Warren. Thank you, Christian. Good to be with you. So what inspired you to write this latest book of yours? Well, it goes back into history of the sport of curling in Canada into the 70s, 80s, early 90s, and it's something I've had in my mind to do since I was involved in that whole process a long time ago, was to put it all into a book and explain the whole story from start to finish, because I think it's been a, it was a pretty interesting one, and it was one with a lot of struggles. So it was on my mind for the last 15 years, and COVID allowed me to get to it. One of the many... Uh... COVID projects. We heard of people baking, heard of people getting the hobbies they finally pushed off for so many years. And for a lot of people, it was writing. And for you, it's this book. So how far back did you have to to dig through these memories? Or did you have diaries written? Did you have to interview people? How did the process of putting this book together go? Well, I was very involved in the whole process from start to finish. So I virtually kept everything that had been involved with it happening, and that was in the form of minutes of meetings, letters, various documents that uh, were developed, and I kept all those things. Uh, it was a couple of large filing boxes, boxes full of information, and so a lot, that along with my memory of, from what took place in those days, uh, I had everything at, at my fingertips to do the task. So what was the appetite? for curling in the Olympics when this process started in the 80s? Or was there one? The process started in the 70s, and there really wasn't one. Uh, I came off of playing in a world championship in 1974 and was sort of disgruntled with the way a lot of things were, and I'd always felt that the sport of curling deserved far more acknowledgement and recognition than it was deser- than it was getting. And it was always considered to be kind of an old boys game, and a lot of people didn't look at it as really a sport. And I wanted it all to change. And I saw on the far horizon maybe Olympics could be uh, something that could help to change that. But when I first got the notion along with Ray King Smith of Calgary to, to start to change things with the sport, the Olympics weren't even uh, on the horizon. And that didn't happen until the early 80s when Calgary was awarded the Games in 1988. And shortly after that, I got a hold of Ray, who was a Calgarian, and said to him, what do you think we have to do to try and get curling as a demonstration sport in, in 88? And his response, well, I don't know. I'll find out. And from that, the process started. So it started in earnest probably in the early 80s. I guess I can go back in, 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 in the 70s, started to do a lot of things to try and change the, the whole uh, perception of what curling was and how it was viewed in the eyes of the non-curlers. And, and that involved trying to get a lot of different ideas that had never been part of the sport mainstream. And I always use as the best example, McDonald Tobacco were sponsor of the Briar for 50 years, and smoking was allowed on the ice. And McDonald's left in 1979, Labatt became the sponsor, so I took it as an opportunity to potentially get smoking off the ice in curling at the Briar. And, of course, 
that did not meet with a lot of pleasant uh, response from many people, particularly those who were feeling sorry that McDonald's had, had left after 50 years. And so it was a struggle. And it's just one example of the many struggles we had to go through to get the sport into a point where it could be considered to be Olympic. And then the struggle that took place after that for it finally to be accepted. So let's get to it being accepted then. It's into the games in, in the early 90s. Uh, I guess, was it uh, something that the IOC, after the demonstration, thought, okay, this, this makes a lot of sense as an Olympic sport? Because I look back now and, you know, curling seems such a staple of the Olympics now. Or maybe that's just my Canadian bias looking at it. But it seems like a, a sport that when people check out the Winter Olympics, they love to see the curling in there. It has become a staple. It's become a go-to uh, type of event because unlike many of the events in the Winter Games, they are outdoors or they're very quick. And curling provides them with a product that is there all the time. And as a result, they go to it a lot of time. But that wasn't how they looked at it in the 80s. And when we put things forward for the demonstration, we were kind of of the opinion that we had to put on a really good show in Calgary, and that would probably be enough to get it in the Olympics. The rules for a sport to become metal is there must be it must be participated on three continents and 25 countries. And when we put all this forward, there was only 18 nations that were members of the World Curling Federation, but we were sort of led to believe that didn't matter. But once we were finished with the whole thing in Calgary, and there had been a lot of bad, bad publicity things happened around it, I think, which they kind of looked at that to some degree as well. But they used the fact that curling didn't have 25 uh, nations in it yet as a reason to reject it. So it was rejected coming out of Calgary in 88 to be medal in 92, but it was continued to be demonstration in 92 in Albertville. Uh, we then got the World Curling Federation involved, and they created a committee that set out to bring in the 25 countries. And so by the early 90s, there was now 25 nations that were members of the World Federation, yet it was rejected for a second time. And in the late part of uh, 1991, early 92, it was, it was virtually rejected for the third time. And uh, interesting enough, we kind of thought it was probably done at that point, but I had established some fairly strong relationships with some people in Japan in the mid-80s. And uh, it, it's a complicated story, which is outlined in the book. But in the end, it was uh, a couple of pretty influential people in uh, Japan that were part of the Nagano Organizing Committee for the 1998 Olympics that led the charge back to the IOC that to some degree made a trade-off. The IOC had passed women's hockey to be in the 98 Games, um, but the Nagano Committee wasn't really that anxious to do it. They really didn't have a facility. They were also a little upset because they had supported curling from, from the early going, and they, curling had the 25 nations. Women's hockey did not. And so they went back to the IOC and sort of said in the end, we'll make you a deal. We'll host women's hockey in Nagano if you include curling, which we will host in Carrizalo because we have a building. And to some degree, that was the way it got in. It was a trade-off that the Nagano Committee made, and as a result, curling became part of the program in 1998. And as you suggest, interesting enough, after all that struggle to get it into the Olympics, it is now one of the things that they go to to a very large degree and is, is very much a staple of the Winter Games. Talking with Warren Hansen, curling author, podcaster here on the CJOB Sports Show. Throughout this whole process, Warren, did you ever get dispirited? that it wouldn't happen, that curling just wouldn't be let in? After 88, uh, I was pretty dejected. And uh, my partner who had worked with me on that whole thing, Ray King-Smith, passed away shortly after. So 
was a pretty much a downer. Um, the process then of getting the 25 nations, and I thought, well, we'll do that, and the World Curling Federation's got to be the people that drive that, but is that really going to be enough to uh, to make it all happen? And, and as time went on, I began to think more and more that it wasn't. But it was always interesting as we got towards uh, the spring of 1992 and that final vote in Barcelona that the people in Japan kept telling me that uh, we need not worry. It's going to get into the Olympics. It'll be in Nagano. And I was very skeptical of their optimism. But in the end, they proved to be correct. And it was that trade-off that they virtually made with the IOC that, that got it in. And uh, as a result, uh, away we go. And the curling world was changed forever. Whether it was, in the opinion of many, for the better or not, it is changed forever. Well, now you look at the way, especially in Canada, curling is it, it, everything's geared towards the Olympics, right? All the quadrennials, you have teams rearranging into super teams at right after Olympics. That's when the Kerry Anderson squad got put together. They didn't make the Olympics this year, but still one of the best teams in the world. What do you think of how curling is in the Olympics? It's kind of become the pinnacle of the sport as it has for a lot of sports. Well, it changed the entire outlook that people had about curling, and particularly the younger people coming up. All of a sudden, it became very much a physical activity, which certainly when we started working on this project, it was considered to be anything but. Uh, it also became a sport that now had a lot of mental aspects involved, mental training, psychologists, part of all these teams, and it took it to, to a new realm. And as a result today, we, we've got a rather strange situation going on in Canada because we've got a number of teams. They're not big in number, but there's quite a few of them that are virtually professionals. They they curl pretty much for a living, and they dedicate their lives completely to training, to practicing, and to being better and better. And so there's kind of a line been divided between that group of people and a bunch that kind of are just behind them or a little bit lower, possibly, that maybe have got some very good abilities, but they aren't able to dedicate the time and, and effort to get to the peak that the, the, the top ones are. And uh, I, I believe that there's a, a need to be looking at changing some things so there's a better way of developing people coming up, because right now that, that's a, a problem I think that Curling Canada faces is the new people coming up aren't being given the opportunity to develop the, the way they need to to, uh, to become the best. And as a result, some of the other countries in the world are getting very good, and Canada's beginning to struggle to win at the world and Olympic level. And I think the other thing, a lot of our best players, because of this process, are, are quite a bit older. And it's taking these younger ones, I think, just too long to be able to be very competitive because they just haven't got the opportunity. Before I let you go, Warren, you're going to be doing your podcast, Inside Curling with Kevin Martin, every day during the Olympics? We are. Starting on February 2nd, we'll be on every morning for a half hour to 45 minutes for, I think, it's 20 days in a row. So we're going to try to really keep on top of things. Uh, Kevin is working with NBC, doing color commentary uh, for the United States uh, Olympic side of things, but he's working actually out of Connecticut. So uh, he's going to be down there. I'm going to be here in Vancouver, but we're going to be doing uh, a podcast every day to keep people current on what's going on. We've got a number of people working with us, uh, some in, uh, in Beijing, some in Canada. So uh, we're looking forward to putting forward some interesting stuff over the course of the games. Are you going to have to change your sleep schedule to get on Beijing time? Uh, my sleep schedule will be changed. If you consider the fact that the last game of the day starts at 4 a.m. my time, and we're probably going to be doing our podcast around 7.30 a.m. my time. So, yes. Sleep schedule okay. will be a little different than it's been normally. 
Yeah, we do that for the sports we love. All right, Warren, appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for this, and best of luck with the book and the podcast. Great, Christian. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Of course, that is when the Jets are not playing, because if the Jets are playing, then I don't have a show, but I'll be part of the pre- and post-game coverage. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to warn you over the day. You may not share our intellect, which might explain your this.